Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We'll read a portion of the third chapter of Philippians and then read two verses from Titus chapter 2 for our texts tonight. We are continuing a two-part sermon on the subject of the Christian's hope, or more precisely, the perpetual posture of the saints of God, that of waiting in hope. In Philippians 3, verse 17, we read, Brethren, be you imitators together of me, and mark them that so walk, even as you have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is perdition, whose God is the belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, whence also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall fashion anew the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory, according to the working whereby he is able even to subject all things unto himself. And then turn over to the book of Titus, chapter 2. This richly ethical epistle written in order to see to it that Titus put things in order in the island of Crete in the cities where the churches were located by appointing elders in those churches who would properly direct and lead and teach those churches and would silence the mouths of those who were upholding error and subverting the gospel and whole houses. In chapter 2, as he laid before the people of God uh, through Titus, some of the practical directives that are guaranteed and always results of the work of grace regarding household and domestic piety, piety on the job, all those various relationships that Christians encounter in this world, he speaks in verse 11 as to something of the reason for these exhortations and why these exhortations must never be left off when the gospel is preached. He says in verse 11, the reason you're to do these things is for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to the intent that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no man despise you or disregard you. I focus your attention upon verse 13. Having said that it is our duty to be pursuant constantly of living soberly and righteously and godly as long as we are in this present world, we are as we are in this present world and living soberly and righteously and godly here and now, always doing that, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, the very way we are able to do that is because we are looking for the blessed hope. It is that hope hanging out there and drilled into our hearts that makes us able to endure in the midst of this wretched generation. Now this morning, we sought to state the reason that the saint of God is in a perpetual posture of waiting in hope. And we said that 
It is because we do not in this life here and now possess that which we will possess. And also because we do not possess here and now what we desire to possess. Then we noted that something of the particular importance of this doctrine for our time is that most of our generation have no thought of heaven, of glory, of a world to come. They are they start and they end in this world. They do mind earthly things. Their God is their belly. And because of that, their end is perdition. And because that doctrine of hope has been stolen from our generation, it is a particularly important doctrine in our day. We must uphold it. We must challenge others to think about it. We must preach it. We must guard it. And we must not let ourselves lose sight of it. Even under the pressure of the highest form of present ethical preaching, we must never forget the future hope of the saints. Then we sought to prove biblically that this is the common experience of all God's people in all ages. And we simply surveyed some of the Psalms and then Hebrews chapter 11 and a couple of other verses in the Scriptures just to show that the Scriptures are full of this concept of the Christian waiting in hope for something that he does not now possess but will one day possess. And then we defined Christian hope in the following words. The hope that is ours, that the Bible speaks about, especially the New Testament, is the firm confidence that God will complete in perfection the work of our salvation, which he has promised and begun in Christ. And we sought briefly to lay that out before you. God promised to save to the uttermost those that come to him by Jesus Christ. And in Christ's death, he pardoned and justified them. And in Christ's resurrection and his sending of his spirit, God sanctifies them. And finally, God has promised to glorify them in the culmination and consummation of their sanctification when the Lord Jesus returns. So that we read in the scripture that Christ in us is the hope of glory. The promise of God is that we should make it to the end and meet him in glory and not fall short of the destination designed and plotted for us in God's everlasting electing love. In chapter 5 of Romans, we are told that we are to rejoice in hope of glory, not necessarily always enjoying this world, but rejoicing always with a firm confidence that one day glory will be ours who wait upon Christ. So this is why that we wait for Christ in Titus 2.13. We're looking for the blessed hope, which is his glorious appearing, when we shall be made completely like him. And so Christian hope is much more than mere wishful thinking. It is the firm confidence that God will complete in perfection the work of our salvation, which is promised and which is begun in Christ. But tonight, I want to lay before you, finally, two other points. First of all, present to you some of the benefits of possessing a strong hope. And then, last, the cultivation of Christian hope. As somebody asked me in the foyer this morning, what if your hope is weak? What if your confidence is feeble? How do you stir it up? How do you strengthen it? Uh, maybe you're going to deal with that tonight, but I'd be interested in hearing about it. And I said, well, that's the last point on the outline to seek to explain something very basically as to how we may cultivate a strong hope as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But before we take up these items for tonight, again, let's pray together and ask the Lord to draw near to us in the preaching of his word. Do help us, our Father, now by your grace, through your Spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to preach as we ought to preach. Lord, carry us along. Buoy us up. Provide grace. Give help. How we need help. How we know our weakness. We know our sins. You know them, but you did not withhold your Son, but you delivered him up for us while we were yet sinners. How much more then through his life will you save us? And how much more will you give good things to those of your children who ask you? So now give your spirit to this hour. 
make this more than the words of men or the vain rituals of a habit of people in a church, but make it a meeting between your people and you. Come near, O God, and speak to us through your chosen instrument, by your grace and mercy in Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. And before we take up something of the benefits of a strong hope and a cultivation of a strong hope, let me simply underscore the ground and the object of our hope so that you don't forget it and so that if you were missing this morning, you may get this straight. The Christian's confidence and his firm confidence, his certainty regarding his future consummation in glory, his ultimate salvation, is certainly not dependent at all on himself. He does not look to himself to strengthen his hope because every area in my experience and I believe in yours where I find encouragement, I find other places of discouragement. When I see something in me that I may say, thank God for his grace, there's been seeming progress in this area, I can point to another place where there's woeful lack of progress. And I've learned that I do not grow in my strong confidence by gazing upon myself and looking for evidence in myself. No, the ground of our hope has always been and always will be not our own righteousness or righteousnesses or anything good in us, but our Lord Jesus himself. And I want to direct your attention to a text, 1 Timothy chapter 1, something that often we would read in passing as we get to the meat of an epistle. But it's in, in interesting that the Apostle Paul makes this designation for our Lord. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. You see, he makes us to consider... And think at the outset of this epistle, wherein lies our hope. Our specific hope is the consummation of our salvation. But the ground and the fountain and the substance that makes that hope a real thing and that makes it certain is nothing less than Christ Jesus himself. We have strong hope because one has accomplished our redemption and has gone on before us as we read this morning as a forerunner beyond the veil and has provided an anchor for our soul so that we may with strong encouragement live our lives in this world who have fled for refuge to lay hold on this hope set before us. So the Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. Brethren, not just our sins provide us no confidence of a hope for the future, but our righteousness provides us no confidence of a hope for the future. You see, it's in Romans 1 that we see that our righteousness could never justify us. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is a divine righteousness that we need and that we do not have apart from Christ. It is when God gives us a God righteousness in his son that we are justified and brought to God and given the right to be called the sons of God. And how do we receive that? It is through Christ himself, his work. First Peter chapter three, verse 18 says that Jesus died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Not simply that he might make us feel somewhat happy for a time. Not just that he might give us a little dose of religion. Not just so that we can walk along with some others and consider ourselves Christians. But that he might bring us to God. The problem is that we are alienated from God. You are, if you're a sinner, unconverted, your problem is not that you're unhappy. Your essential problem is not that you don't have money. Your problem is not that you've got marriage problems or problems with your boss or problems with your parents or problems with your children or problems with your neighbors. The essential problem of your life is you're separated from God. You're not, you're not in, in communion with God. You're alienated. You're a stranger to God. Jesus died to remedy that, to bring us who are alienated from God, who are enemies of God, to God and to reconcile us to God. 
So when Jesus died, he died to the end that he might bring us to God. And to bring us to God is to save us. It's not one or the other. We don't possess salvation apart from communion with God. We don't possess salvation with the option of knowing God. And brethren, I must tell you, I want to put a plug in for the book review. I want you to buy this book. Some of you may not buy them very much. And as I've just over the months been asking for a show of hands once in a while, I'm aware that some don't want to buy the book or don't have the money or what have you. This one is a paperback and it costs $7 and it may seem like a lot. But I tell you, this book by John MacArthur, The Gospel According to Jesus, though it has error in it, though his dispensationalism is still flagrant in it, this book is sweeping this country among evangelicals and sending shockwaves among them because it takes on a damning heresy of our day. But what it's done, as I've been reading this week, it has brought the snakes out from under the rocks. It has stirred up the troops and the hornets. And oh, are they mad. Books are coming off the press now, assaulting John MacArthur and saying that the gospel he is preaching is not the biblical gospel, but is another gospel. And you know what they call his gospel? They call it Lordship Salvation. They've tagged it Lordship Salvation. And they're saying it's a salvation of works. And they're saying that you there's no requirement to get rid of any sin before coming to Christ or in coming to Christ. That there's no doctrine in the Bible of required repentance. And they cite some of those texts that speak of believing on Christ but do not explicitly mention repentance as proof of their doctrine that repentance and departing from sin and the gospel instructing us that we live soberly and godly and righteously in this present world, they eliminate that from their gospel. And they say that MacArthur's book is sending forth signals of a heretical message. I say to you that Jesus died not just to put within our hand the confidence that someday we'll get to fly fish for eternity. He did not die so we could go someplace and be comfortable and happy whether God is there or not. Nor did he die so that in this life we can be Christians with security and then in the next life finally become holy and want to be holy and want to have something to do with God. He did not die to bring people to salvation and not to God. They are the same thing. To bring us to God. To make us his children. And to make us like him. And the process is evident. In the life of everyone who is born of God. There is no such thing as an uncommitted Christian. Those are contradictory terms. We're not speaking of carnal Christians. Uncommitted Christians. We're either Christians or we're not. And if we're Christians, we're conforming regularly and increasingly to the image of Christ. Because that's the reason he died. And what happens when we suggest that you can be saved and not be holy, we are suggesting that Jesus failed in the end for which he died. Because he died that we should be holy and blameless before him. We should be holy. So I wanted to explain to you and underscore this principle that the ground of our hope is Christ himself who died that he might bring us all the way to God. And it transforms the way we live on our way ultimately to perfect conformity to God. He died. He was raised from the dead. And in that resurrection, as we read this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he begat us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How do you have hope? Because Jesus is not in the grave. He arose. He has ascended far above principalities and powers and every name that is named and is seated at the right hand of the God. God, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has highly exalted. God has raised him up. You have crucified the Lord of glory. He has entered heaven to intercede for his ongoing saints in this world so that he might bring them to uttermost salvation. Therefore, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, we are told that we possess a better hope than those who under the old covenant didn't have a clear view of this. You see, in the old covenant, they were hoping for the ultimate salvation that had not even been inaugurated yet. It had not even, the, 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 the lamb had not been slain. They were looking forward to a promised Messiah who had not yet died for sin. 
They were still having to depend on the shadows and the types and the, and the uh, uh, substitutes and the samples and the examples. They did not have the substance. They looked afar off and they saw it afar off by faith, but they didn't see it clearly. The prophets searched diligently to figure out what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was signifying when He spoke by them of the sufferings and the glories of Christ. But they couldn't understand exactly how God was going to bring it about. And they lived with a dimmer hope than we do. But we have a full assurance of hope laid out before us because He's died. And God has raised Him. And we've witnessed Him ascending into the heavens. And we have confidence that if God has completed that promise, He'll complete the next. This same Jesus, whom you've seen go up into the heavens, will so come in like manner as you have seen Him go. Therefore, you go preach. That's the, es that's the essence of the Christian's confidence in this world. As it says in Romans 4, Christ was raised for our justification. So understand it. You're not looking in yourself for your hope. You're looking to Christ who is our hope. Let that be clear. And though all that we preach regarding the necessity of holiness and the pursuit of obedience and all that we preach, we believe it with a whole heart, will not compromise it. Nonetheless, our hope is not in that holiness. Our hope is not in that obedience. Christ Jesus is made unto us righteousness, wisdom, sanctification, and redemption. It is in Him that we have all those things, and from Him that we get all those things, and through them that we experience all those things. Keep it clear. Don't ever leave it. Don't think that what makes our church different from most evangelicals is that we believe Christians are legalistic. Or that we have additional rules on top of what the Bible teaches. Or that we think somehow that Christians are saved by grace plus works. That's not what distinguishes us, brethren. We do not believe that. It's all grace. It's all God. It's all Christ. Get that clear. And we're not strutting around with confidence because we somehow have a superior view of obedience. We struggle around with confidence because we have a superior Savior. And our focus is upon Him. Well, what are some of the benefits, then, of a strong hope? And I've listed only three. But I believe that they do cover something of a broad cross-section of the Christian's experience. And I trust that they'll be somewhat encouraging to you. The first benefit of a strong hope, which I wish to lay before you, is that a strong hope, one cultivated in the heart of a saint that becomes a confidence in God's promises, provides consolation in the midst of afflictions. A strong hope provides consolation in the midst of afflictions. Chapter 6 of Hebrews speaks to us regarding strong encouragement that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have a strong encouragement. Well, in what kind of context do we need a strong encouragement? Well, let me address myself to 1 Peter chapter 1 and let me direct your attention to it. And I want to show you something of this process. The, the book of 1 Peter lays before the people of God this doctrine of hope because we dearly need it. We need consolation in the midst of afflictions because we are in the midst of afflictions. As a pastor, I experience different shades of affliction in the life of God's people and am called upon for various times of comfort. And some of you, uh, you have your good days and your bad days and you don't always fall apart on the same day. And I'm not always saying that every one of us is experiencing an equal degree of affliction. We're not. But I, over the years, have discovered that every one of us is in the midst of affliction. To some degree or another, to some increasing or decreasing frequency and fervency, every saint of God is in the midst of affliction. Some are more inward. Some bring them on themselves more often. Some are the afflictions of soul more than the afflictions of body. Others are more external in the afflictions of body. Some both. And some produce one because of the other. But we all are in the midst of affliction. Well, in First Peter chapter 1, verse 21. He speaks of Christ foreknown from the foundation of the world, but manifested at the end of the ages of the times for your sake. Verse 21, who through him are believers in God that raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope 
might be in God. Simon Peter makes it clear and and attempts to underscore in the mind of his readers that you need to know that you've got some hope. But where is your hope? Your hope is in God. How is it in God? It is by virtue of Christ through whom you are believers in God who raised him from the dead. God has taken your hope out of this world, as it were, out of the hands of men, out of trust in humanistic ability, and put it in God by the resurrection of the dead. Your hope is beyond the grave because your hope is in one who has accomplished victory over the grave. Your hope is in God. Well, why do these people need to have their hope in God? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 11. He has just described to them what they are. And it's always important in the scriptures that you understand first what you are before you can know how you're to do what you're to do. If you lose sight of what you are, you'll lose confidence in doing what you're supposed to do. So he's told them what they are. He's spoken to us as an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I beseech you as sojourners and pilgrims. You see the theme? This is not my home. This world is not my hope. I'm passing through. To abstain. Now, since you're pilgrims, what are you supposed to do? Does it matter then how you live? You're not going to be here long. You're going to go to heaven. You know you're saved. Once saved, always saved. So really, it's not that. That's not what he says. Since you're pilgrims and sojourners, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. It is the nature of these things that they fight against your soul. With the end that they destroy your soul. That's why you abstain. He said, no, no, you don't understand, Peter. I'm already saved, so these things can't hurt my soul. Peter says, you're sojourners and pilgrims. You're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, the people of God. These things do so war against your soul. And if you do not abstain from them, they will destroy your soul. That's the implication. Otherwise, words mean nothing. And this warning is an empty thing. Why give the admonition if it doesn't make any difference? If they only sort of war... And suggest war, but can't hurt you. Why abstain? Why not get the best of both worlds? If indeed we could convince ourselves that fleshly lusts are the best in this world. But abstain from them. They war against the soul. But you see, the undergirding strength by which we can abstain from fleshly lusts. It is because we know that we're strangers and pilgrims here. And our hope is beyond here. You see that? Because your sojourners here abstain from fleshly lusts. Knowing that this is not your final home, you can do without this stuff. You don't need this. It helps you to back off from this and to abstain from it. Having your behavior seemly among the nations, that wherein they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they behold glorify God in the day of visitation. Then verse 13. Be subject to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Here we are in a world in which authorities are not just. The rulers of this world are not just. You never know what kind of decision the next judge is going to send down. You never know when parents are going to be prosecuted for for neglect, child neglect, simply because they're educating them at home and getting better test scores than the public schools are getting. You never know. It's happening right here. We're praying for a pastor and his family who are going to family court and going to have the social services people invading their home because they didn't put their kids in a public school. You never know. What are we to do? We're to submit to every ordinance of man. For the Lord's sake. Whether to the king as supreme... Or to governors are sent by him for vengeance on evildoers and for praise to them that do well. For so is the will of God, that by well-doing you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, in other words, in a sense, you are free from all that. Your citizenship is in heaven, and in one sense you can say, look, I don't have to obey this stuff. And yet not using your freedom as a cloak for maliciousness, you submit. You really are not under their authority in actuality. You're under God's authority, and yet God has put you under their authority. And if you're to express properly your authority under which you are from God, you must submit to their ordinances. Every one of their ordinances, unless those ordinances require you to commit sin, you submit to them. Not using your 
freedom as a cloak for wickedness, but as bond servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Who's the king? Well, he's the one that perhaps had Peter crucified upside down. Nero. Or he may have been one of the other emperors. Honor the king. Honor Caesar. I'll tell you, in this day, these kinds of texts don't have a, don't, couldn't stand in many of our churches. They wouldn't stand to read these and interpret them. That way, can't stomach them. They're so incensed against their authorities. In the name of righteousness, they believe their right to resent, to despise, to hate their authorities. He says, honor them. He doesn't say you have to agree with them. He doesn't say you have to practice what they practice. He doesn't even say you can't preach against their sins. But he says, honor them. Honor them for their office's sake. Well, how can you? He goes on in verse 18. Servants, be in subjection to your masters with all fear. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. Well, that's hard to stomach. You employees, be in subjection to your employer. Not only to the nice ones, but to the hard and the unfair and the unjust and the ones that give you more overtime than they do the other people or won't give you overtime when you need it or insist on you working on the Lord's day when they agreed when you took the job you didn't have to and they start changing the rules and they start sneaking in the little surprise inventories and what have you that sometimes you have to. And those that sometimes treat you like a dog hoping you'll resign so they won't have to fire you since they have no legal right to do so. Or those who put you in the desk right in the middle of all the smokers because they've heard that you don't like smoking. Or those that sit in the desk next to you and find out you don't like smoking so they move the ashtray to your side. And they leave it on the ashtray more often than they keep it in their mouth and let it burn and let you smell more of the smoke than they have to smell. These are not hypotheticals. Are those that find out that you don't like those nasty pictures over their particular desk and so they put a few others on there in addition? And every time you walk into the room, they direct your attention to their newest one? Are those that know that you don't like the words that they use and so they increase them? Are those that rub it in by saying, oh, excuse me, I forgot that preacher Bob was in. Or I forgot that holy reverend so-and-so had come into the room. Oh, hush, fellows. Mr. Holier-than-thou has entered. You live like that in the world? If you don't, I don't know where you came from, brethren, because a lot of folks do. And they have all sorts of subtle ways to put the pressure on. In that context, how are you supposed to act? What if your boss won't listen to your concerns? What if he keeps throwing you into those places knowing he doesn't like you either because your life is a rebuke to him? What do you do? Be in subjection to your masters. With all fear. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the froward. Keep your mouth shut and do what he, what he tells you to do. And be the best employee he has. That's the biblical doctrine. For this is acceptable. If for conscience toward God a man endures grief, suffering wrongfully, he's not suggesting you're suffering rightly. You shouldn't be treated this way. It's wrong of them to do this to you. You submit to them anyway. For conscience sake. But how can you do that? How can you live with this kind of affliction? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. In like manner, you wives... Be in subjection to your own husbands. That even if any obey not the word, they may without the word be gained by the behavior of the wife. Now notice this. What is the peculiar behavior of the wife pointed to here? Not her strong ability to explain the Bible to her husband. Not her trained, canned, verbal witness. Just the opposite. Without a word. Without a word. You win it. How? How can you? He doesn't believe the word. He's not a Christian. You are. What do you do? You wives be in subjection to your husbands. Even if he doesn't believe the Bible. Even if he thinks that church to which you go is wasting your life and time. If he resents it and does everything he can, short of forbidding and physically preventing you from attending, to stop you. What do you do? You subject yourself to such a man, not when he commands you not to go to church, but when he commands you to do things that are, in, that are neutral, that he, he rules the house, you subject yourself to it. Without a word. Not murmuring, not screaming, not yelling, not nagging, not griping, not correcting him. Shut the mouth. Nothing could be clearer. 
and nothing could be further from the common practice of most professing Christian wives in this generation. We spent some time with a lady in Texas who goes to a regular Bible study, who professes to know the Lord, who talks about the Lord, who speaks about the greatest insights, who reads Christian books all the time. I quoted this one text and she said, I don't want to hear any more. Bug off that kind of talk. Submitting to my husband. Yeah. And by that statement, she eliminated every bit of credibility that she might have gained by making me think she was a Bible student. Because at the point of her affliction, at the point of her frustration, at the point of the difficulty for her, and she's not married to a man that doesn't believe the word. She just doesn't want anybody to rule her. And this verse she can't stomach. But the scriptures make it clear. But notice how she can do it. Verse 2 goes on to describe the chaste behavior coupled with fear. Verse 3, the inward adorning, not the, not the, ex, the expensive and embroiled conscience, focusing on the braiding of the hair, the wearing of jewels of gold, putting on, not focusing on the outer woman, the latest fashion, the neatest hairdo, the most expensive garb and, and garbage, but on the hidden man of the heart. In the incorruptible apparel of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For this, after this manner aforetime, the holy women also, look at this phrase, who hoped in God, adorned themselves. I submit that that is the key to understanding the secret behind these women. How did they, like Sarah, keep their mouths shut and be in subjection to their husbands even sometimes when their husbands were asking them to do things that by our standards are quite questionable at best? How could they? They hoped in God. Their hope was not focused in this world. They weren't anchored in this age. They were anchored beyond their husband. Ladies, may I say it this way, their husbands were not the answer to their happiness. And they knew it. They did not get married thinking they were going to be made happy by that man. He was not a means to an end. He was not used by them to get something they couldn't have without him. Their primary sense of responsibility in their marriage was not to get something from the husband, but to love him, to help him, to encourage him, to build him up, to support him. Now, there's a good address to husbands here, too, in verse 7. In like manner, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto the women. Oh, brethren, I don't have to say that's typical of our culture. I say that's typical of this room. Some of you men haven't learned this yet, how to honor your wife. It's taken me 15 years just to figure out I'm supposed to. Some of you still don't honor Notice what it says, honor her as unto the weaker vessel. I made a comment about the weaker vessel. And this dear Texas lady couldn't stand the thought that she was considered weaker. And the pride bristled. Well, I don't know what it means. I don't know everything it means. I just know that God said it. And in some way, you ladies are weaker. I'm not sure exactly all. I could go a long list and suggest what I think it means, but it's clear that something's different here between a man and a woman. And it's different in this text at the point of weakness. And so what's the husband's duty? To despise the fact that she gets more scared of mice than he does? And that he can't even walk through the house without a screen that knocks him off his rocker because she's completely beside herself when something little great thing that no, he knows is not going to hurt anybody. That's part of her weakness. That he, she doesn't want to stay alone in the bed when he's out of town at night and doesn't sleep and stays up all night. I'm not speaking hypothetically, brother. How do you, what do you do with a, with a wife that has those kind of weaknesses? You don't understand how anybody could be scared so irrationally. Honey, if they're going to break in, they're going to break in. I, I don't have enough bars and iron and locks to set up all our windows. If these guys are that bad and that wicked, locking that door is not going to keep them out, sweet. I'll go lock it. I'm sorry I forgot. 
I'm not worried about it. We've got that big dog sitting right there. Nothing like coming home from a vacation, or I mean from a trip preaching, and finding out that the dog finally got into the house for safety. What do I do? Well, I have to confess that the first exposure I had to that in marriage bugged me to death. Why do women have to? That was my thought. I confess it. I'm not proud of it. I don't even want to make it humorous. I failed to honor her in those days. I learned a little bit. Somehow, this is just a little example of that. Man, you've got to think of this woman as put into your hands for your protection and your honor and your help and your cherishing. And you need to treat her sweetly. And you need to consider her. That's why you're supposed to open doors for her. Not because she can't. We're not making a statement about chauvinism. We're honoring the weaker vessel. We're not, that's why we wait instead of walking 20 steps ahead of her. We're not Arabs. We're not Muslims. That's why we don't just forget her and let her carry all the Bibles, all the coats, all the kids and everything else while we go do our visiting. That's why we can't do that. We have to honor her. You, you have smiles all over your faces. But I tell you, the failure to honor our wives often is rooted in our self-centered, indulgent bellies. Our thoughtless, greedy, proud selves. Why waste time waiting for this woman? All she does is wash my dirty underwear, keep my house clean, serve me and feed me and give me my children and train them and teach them and dress them and do everything else. And all I do is go off, leave the house every day with the pressure on her, make money and come home griping. And you men that are planning to get married, you get this settled in your mind. I'm not going to be very enthusiastic about performing your ceremony if you're not prepared to be honorable to your wife and to consider her in cherishing sweetness as a weaker vessel. How can you do it, though? Because your hope is beyond your belly. Because you look beyond what you can get out of this world, and she's no more a slave to you. She becomes a fellow heir of the grace of life. And then your prayers won't be hindered. That's what the passage tells us. You see what he's telling us. In all these areas, there are afflictions. What do you do, husband, when you've got a nag for a wife? You honor her as the weaker vessel. What do you do, wives, when you've got an impossible man living with you? He puts pressure on you. He's lazy. He's self-indulgent. He leaves all sorts of things, jobs unfinished around the house and frustrates the daylights out of you. What do you do? You subject yourself to him with your mouth shut. How can you? Because your hope is in God. And you just don't, don't let yourself get that exasperated by people in this world when your hope is in God. Most of us got into those predicaments because of our poor preparation for marriage anyway. God has to teach us a lot of things. And one of the ways he teaches by giving us spouses that rub us the wrong way. We learn more than we do when things go smoothly. We remember those lessons longer. And God knows how to teach us. Consolation in the midst of afflictions. And look at verse 15 of chapter 3. But sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. And see, this is almost like a summary imperative of the whole book. It is our constant duty to sanctify the Lord Christ in our hearts. Being ready always to give answer to every man that asks you a reason concerning the hope which is in you. The universal result of the kind of sanctifying of Christ in the heart that shows itself in these various relationships, the universal result is a strong Christian witness. And the universal result is that some are going to ask, why do you have this hope in you? Why would they ask about the hope in you? Because you're living like someone who's got his life staked on something that he can't see. Because in all these afflictions, you, you keep overcoming them. 
You overcome evil with good. Somebody smarts off to you and you bless him back. That's what the scripture says we should do, doesn't it? Somebody persecutes you and you pray for him. Somebody disowns you and you embrace him. How do you do that? People start asking you how you do that. And what they're asking is, give me a reason for the hope that's within you. And then you point them beyond this world and you say, the reason my boss, my husband, my wife, my family, my economics do not leave me in despair, bitter, sour, and down all the time is because my hope is beyond the grave. And my hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead, who's coming back, and all this will be put right. And I'll tell you, if we discipline ourselves in these things, the day will come, and we'll be, we'll be the kind of witnesses we wish we were. Well, in the second place, consolation in the midst of afflictions, also a strong hope provides sanctification in the presence of temptation. Sanctification in the presence of temptation. The constant temptation of this dear wife without an unbeliever is to quit. What's the use? The constant temptation of a mother with these children is to quit. Of a husband who often is not appreciated, who often the family don't realize all the stuff he's bearing. The wife thinks she's got all the burdens. She doesn't think the guy has a worry in the world because all she ever sees him do is watch TV. Sometimes she doesn't understand that one of the reasons he watches TV, which is not an excuse, is because he feels the pressure of all this stuff. He'd like to escape. It's not a healthy escape, but what she thinks is a guy that has no cares may be a guy that's weighted down with cares. And sometimes the husband would like to get in the car and not turn back at the end of the day. I didn't say a godly husband ever would, but sometimes that's the temptation. And don't kid yourself if you think the devil wouldn't suggest it to us. A father, a pastor, a deacon who doesn't get the glory of the pastorate, but he has a lot of work to do. An employee, which of them has not thought to quit? However, in the midst of such temptation to quit, there is this purifying hope. John says that he that has this hope in him, in Christ who's coming, purifies himself even as he is pure. Not only are we going to be made perfectly like him when he comes, our knowledge and expectation of his coming makes us become more and more like him while we wait. He purifies himself even as he is pure because he has this hope in Christ. It is a sanctifying hope in the presence of temptation. You are sojourners and pilgrims, so abstain from fleshly lusts. Live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world because you're looking for the blessed hope. Gives us a motivation for the resistance of fleshly lusts. And it provides us a disposition for the cultivation of our relational ethics. And all the things we've read in 1 Peter 2 and 3, not only are afflictions, but are temptations as well. Every affliction is a temptation. Because the affliction carries with it the accuser of the brethren and the slanderer who says, you shouldn't have to put up with this. How much longer are you going to put up with this? You're better than they are. Why don't you give it up? Why don't you throw in the towel? And if I'm not mistaken, those same suggestions come into the minds of people sitting in the pew of a holy church during the, during the middle of preaching when a particular sin is exposed by a sermon and the slanderer is there present to suggest, why does he have a right to tell me? Who does he think he is? I've seen him do the same kinds of things. I'm sure he has the same sins. And all sorts of ways to be tempted. But you see our hope. Beyond all our relational ethics. The ordinances of men. The social arrangements of men. Bosses to servants. Wives to husbands and vice versa. Saints to sinners. Children to parents. You don't give up because your hope is in Christ. Let me speak for just a minute to the children. You little children. How many children under 12, 12 years of age and lower do we have in here? Would you raise your hands if you're 12 years or younger? Raise your hand high so Pastor Allen can see it. Let me speak to you just a minute. We have so many of them. 
Let me tell you something. Sometimes your mommy and daddy don't do right. Once in a while you see your mom and daddy. I might want to mind this not shake mind his head. Once in a while, maybe more often than we'd like to admit, our parents lose their temper, don't do their duties. They speak angrily to us because they're tired and they're frustrated and they're thoughtless and we do something they don't like and they bite our head off with their words. And sometimes it hurts, doesn't it? And it discourages us, doesn't it? What are you supposed to do, children, when your parents sin? And they do wrong and they hurt you. You're supposed to do the same thing the rest of us are supposed to do when somebody hurts us. You're supposed to trust in the Lord Jesus. You're supposed to look beyond your parents and pray for them. And you're supposed to put your hopes in Christ because he can save you from all that. And the one thing you must not do, children, you must not grow up and be like mommy and daddy when they do things like that. How can you keep from growing up and being like mommy and daddy? You're going to have to let the Lord Jesus teach you how to live in some of those ways that your parents are not doing a very good job of it. I'll speak to some of you who are older children. Some who are old enough who think you're not children anymore, but I know better. I I like the designation of 25-year-olds as young people. I like them calling them youth retreats when they're 25. I think that's good. It's humbling. You can't even get decent insurance rates. Why do you think you're so mature? (laughs) I like that. But it's also the age that's the hardest nut to crack in convincing somebody he's young. They all think they're more mature than they are. I did. You all did. It's hard to teach a 25-year-old. It's hard to teach a 35-year-old. Not too easy to teach a 45-year-old. But I speak to some of you older children especially some of you teenagers that have already been burned by your parents and you're now using your parents as your excuse to disobey Jesus Christ. I tell you, you'll go to just as hot a hell as a kid who was raised in a reprobate home. You will not give account in in the judgment for your parents, young people. The Lord's not going to say, now, is there any real extenuating circumstance to which you can point that excuses your behavior and your neglect of your duty to worship me, serve me, and love me? Well, you can't expect me to. You saw the way my dad was. You know the way my mom was. If you had wanted me to serve, you could have put me in a holy home. I tell you, if God wanted you to serve him, he would have told you to, and he did. And if you don't, you'll give account for your own rebellion at the day of judgment. You put your hope on Christ... And your mother and father cannot keep you from heaven. And they cannot keep you from holy living. There is no person in this world who following Christ at whatever age can be kept from obedience by anybody else. It cannot be done. The only person that keeps from obedience is you. Mister, your wife is not preventing your growth in grace. Your stubborn pride is. My dear lady, your husband is not the one that's halting God's grace growing in your life. It's your refusal to obey what you already know. Hear the word of God. This hope sanctifies us in the presence of temptation. I want to direct your attention to the Psalms, 119. And I can see we're not going to finish again tonight, but I felt the need to camp out here. Psalm 119, verse 166. Oh, how rich a psalm this is, continues to be. You tempted to bitterness and envy because somebody else has something in this world that you can't get. You tempted to depression, to anger, to premature solutions to long-term problems. Like going into great debt when you can't afford the payments because you just can't wait for that car? Well, this is a good verse. Psalm 119, 166. I have hoped for thy salvation, O Jehovah, and have done thy commandments. See, growing right out of my hope for God's salvation is my ability and willingness to obey his commandments in the face of temptation. It's the hope of his salvation that keeps me obeying. 
If I didn't have that, if I didn't have the longer view, all these afflictions and all these temptations would inundate me and flood me and drown me. I'm a sinner enough without them. With them, I have no hope unless I have hope. But then in the third place, consolation in the midst of afflictions, sanctification in the presence of temptation. We also have the benefit of a strong hope in endurance in the face of delay. Endurance in the face of delay. And this, more than any other that we've said, impinges upon the whole subject matter of Pastor Sarver's series on waiting on God. And so I don't need to spend much time on it. But just to remind you, in the book of Hebrews, what we read this morning in chapter 10, you have need of patience that having done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Chapter 11, verse 27, By faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. In verse 39, as we read again this morning, These all, having had witness borne to them through their faith, received not the promise. They endured to the end, to death. We live in an instant culture, a self-indulgent generation. Gratification now. I tell you, it is the reason some of you are frustrated in your devotionals. Some of you don't have the struggle of so much of rampant sexual sin. That's not what bothers you. But what you have is the problem that when you get on your knees and open your Bible, God doesn't come right then and make you feel happy. And you get all messed up when you get up from your devotional time and no big deal has happened to your spine column. No chill bumps, no tears, no... You just feel sort of blah. And therefore you start panicking and running in all directions trying to explain what happened. Well, what happened was you read God's Word obediently. You heard God's Word. You addressed your concerns to God he's made promises to answer those concerns and you're now finished with that and got to get on to some more duties that's what happened what do you think was going to happen or supposed to happen what does God have to do when you get quiet for eight seconds during the day what kind of an agenda have you laid out for him you ought to be thankful you got a Bible to open and you ought to start your prayer time by saying thank you I've got a Bible to open instead of saying why don't I feel anything well, one of the reasons you don't feel anything is because you've got too much fat on your body and the, and the nerves can't get the chill bumps to the surface very easily. One of the reasons is you've indulged yourself in so much weeping over stupid television programs, you don't have any tears left for heavenly things. Your energies have been so given to this world, there's nothing left. That's one of the reasons you don't feel anything and can't... Push God's button and make Him turn you on. But you live in a generation and you've imbibed the Spirit. God didn't say, go to your closet and in secret feel good. But He said, go to your closet and in secret pray to your Heavenly Father. Can you pray no matter what, how you feel? I can. Should you? Yes. You need to learn to address Jehovah without regard to how you feel. Do your duty. I tell you, God blesses you in the way of duty, not in the way of emotion. And I can say, I, this needs to be preached almost every week to this congregation and this generation. It's one of the reasons you're frustrated in your devotionals because you too have imbibed the spirit of gratification now. Though it's in the realm of the spirit, you still demand immediate answers to, to your prayers. Very few saints in history have had that kind of response from God. Daniel was one of the few who while he prayed, God began the work motions in heaven. Brethren, don't be surprised if God makes you wait a bit. You've made him wait a bit. You've got a few things to learn. Well, we live in this age of instantism, but our hope 
means that we have our values and our goals set beyond this world. This world is not my hope or home. I look for a city to come which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I consider the reproach of Christ greater riches than the best thing this world can give. How? Because my hope is fixed beyond this world. The goal of every true believer is to be a partaker of the holiness of God and to see the face of God. And that's what makes us different. I want to show you Psalm 17 and bring this to a conclusion. And I apologize for not getting to the cultivation of the hope. Perhaps in the future I can do that. Psalm 17, verse 13. Again, the contrast between us and the wicked. Arise, O Jehovah. Psalm 17, 13. Confront him. Cast him down. Deliver my soul from the wicked by thy sword. From men by thy hand, O Jehovah. From men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They're satisfied with children and leave the rest of their substance to their babies. That's the way they are. What do I do? Do I kill them? Do I try to force them through governmental edict to straighten out and give me part of their stuff? Do I lead a revolution so we can take from those that have and give to those that have not? From him that hath according to his ability to him that hath not according to his need? Is that what I... So find from my Bible, no, not Karl Marx theology. I go to God about this. And I say, Lord, you take care of this. They're satisfied with children. You fill their belly with treasure. They leave the rest of their subjects when they die to their babies. I don't have any inheritance from my own kids. What do I do? I go to God. And in verse 15, look at what it says. As for me, I shall behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with beholding thy form. You see the difference? This fellow dies and all he's got is an inheritance to leave to his kids. What do I get when I die? I get to see Jehovah. What satisfies that man? His children, his family. Brethren, this is why many of the ungodly have healthy families and happy homes and are happy in their families. That's all they have. That's the end of it. You'll hear many on the TV talking about, well, it's family that really makes it different. It's family that fills our lives, our children. Don't ever let your children or your family be the end of your satisfaction. They'll disappoint you. Oh, it's good to have it. I delight in my wife and children. I thank God for them. But I've told them, and I have to remind myself regularly that my hope and my delight and my joy is way beyond that. And until it becomes beyond that, some of you are still vulnerable to forsake Christ for your wife or your kids or your fathers and mothers. You must never get it confused. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy countenance, with thy form. I shall see thy face in righteousness. That's what I long to see. That's the hope of the believer. And that hope makes him able to wait and endure through all kinds of delay. The delay of the answers to prayer. The delay of getting what he's asked God to give him. The delay of all of his most strenuous and exerted efforts in this world. The delay of the salvation of family members. The delay of the building up of the church. The delay of getting a parking lot for a church building. In every kind of delay that would seem honorable for God to hasten the process, the saint has his hope beyond every bit of that and is able to endure in holiness till the end I submit to you there are many in the world who will never have their Berlin walls torn down and they'll go to their graves with very little confidence and hope and blessing from this world may God help many of them that their hope may be beyond all that and that they may go to their grave in faith because their hope was ground in the Lord Jesus and may we in this place who have so much more than all of them in this world, not fall prey to the, to the deceit and the snare of Satan, that we lose our heart for heaven because of our taste for the good things of this world. Dear brethren, watch your step. We have so many options. 
in this world the best of everything that we're in great danger of getting our eyes off of the countenance of God I'm not at all ashamed to say that in this church there is a large degree of that and we need to mortify it I don't know how all the ways we can and I'm not condemning you for living in a, in a luxurious and affluent age and place that's not your fault not, you didn't sin, but you've got to guard your soul extraordinarily because the temptation to take your eyes off heaven is great when the world tastes so good. May God spare us, and may you give God thanks when he takes the best things you've got in this world and puts sourness in them. When you spend your big bucks on, on Disney World and it just ain't what they said it was, and you lost all your money. And you have to go 18 months after that just saving every dime because there's nothing to spend for Christmas. When you don't have the Christmas you have come to know and love and expect. And not all the Fisher Price on the, desk, on the shelf is available to your kids this time. Because there's a budget in your house. There's stewardship and responsibility. When you can't buy a steak every time you prefer it. When you have to say no to what other people assume are basic rights. Thank God that he put that on you. Thank God. Don't gripe fuss and then start twisting fate to try to make it happen anyway. Thank God for giving you a way to escape the damnation of the love of this world. I thank the Lord that I've tasted the best things this world has to offer. And God has every time put a little bit of lemon juice in it. And it took me years to figure out what he was doing. And instead of griping, to start saying thank you. Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. Set your affections on things above. And spend your treasure on things above. Lay up treasure in heaven, and they'll endure. Well, with the apostle I say to you, may the God of hope fill you with all peace and joy in believing and may you abound in hope by the Holy Spirit let us pray our father there's so much more to this truth we pray that what has been expounded and taught will find a lodging place in the recesses of our hearts Oh, help us not soon to forget what we've been reminded of today, that our hope is in heaven, where you are, and from where you will return to us to bring us to yourself and consummate the redemption begun in your shed blood. Oh, Lord, how may we give you thanks for your appointment of us to glory. You have not appointed us to wrath, but to the sharing of your glory. Oh, Lord, how may we thank you. We praise you, and we ask you, our Father, in kindness to us, not to let us have all the things we want, but to make us want all the things you are and all the things you have, and to make that our delight. And let us awaken in the morning satisfied with your likeness. Hear our plea, and fill us with a strong hope to the glory of him who is our hope dwelling in us, our Lord Jesus Christ.